Welcome to this special JustCast series about the upcoming Reclosure 2021 conference. We're going to have a brief conversation with our speakers, asking them some questions about their life and job to get to know them better. Today, I'm joined by Sam Ritchie, who is going to co-host this episode with me. Hey, Sam, how are you? Maybe you can introduce yourself. Uh, hey, I'm Sam Ritchie. Uh, I'm doing great here on Thanksgiving Day when we're recording. Um, I'm currently working as a researcher at the Mentat Collective. Uh, more relevant to this conversation, I've had the great pleasure of spending the last year plus really arms deep in Jerry's uh, Scheme Utils library, which backs a number of the books he's written, uh, porting that over into a computer algebra system enclosure. Uh, so Jerry, Gerald Sussman, the author of Scheme Utils, is here with us today. Um, this is a total honor for me. This is exactly how I want to be spending the morning. So I'm thrilled. Uh, how are you doing, Jerry? How's how's Thanksgiving? How, how are you? Well, I don't know. It looks pretty nice. It's a little bit uh, colder than uh, it was a week ago, uh, but it's been pretty good. I expect that uh, pretty soon we'll have some snow here. But in any case, uh, you know, I've been through lots of these <laughs> winters. And I like it's better to always better have a cold weather than hot weather. And the reason is you can always put on more clothes, but you can't take it off after you have zero. Yes, that's right. True. Awesome. So we are recording this on Thanksgiving Day, as we said. So this is a wonderful chance for us to thank Jerry for everything he did for us. So it's difficult for me to find a short sentence to describe one person's lifetime of achievements and advancements in computer science. But let me try the impossible with the following. Jerry is Professor of Electrical Engineering at MIT. He has been involved in artificial intelligence, programming languages, and science education, and much more. From the point of view of the closure community, Jerry is known for his work on structure and interpretation of computer programs, or SICP, a reference textbook that is often cited as one of the best in terms of elegance and functional purity. Now, it's difficult to find something about yourself that is not already in the public domain, Jerry, but we'll try to explore different areas of your life and work. Sure. And to break the ice, let me start with this question. Where would you most like to live if it wasn't where you live already? You're going to be uh, finding this an impossible pl- thing. Okay, I would like to live in a house that has the three doors. One door opens to my office at MIT. One door opens to Midtown Manhattan not far from the place to get to the American Museum of Natural History. And another door opens in a dark sky place, probably in the southwest of the United States, so I can look at the sky. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know how to make such a mechanism. Yeah, but yeah. that's your ideal place. Um, yes, and indeed. It's, it's, a, it's indeed connecting some of your like things in life, right? Oh, that's yes. why. Yeah. Okay, now on a more serious note, how did you get into computers? Well, that's a long story. I mean, the bottom line is that when I was very young, I got interested in electronics. And the reason why was my, I had a cousin, Justin, who was a ham radio operator, okay, who sort of used to drop QST magazines in, in, for me to read when I was a little, little boy, okay? So I eventually became a ham radio operator, and I also built lots and lots of things out of electron tubes and relays with high voltages, you know, like 300 volts and so on, when I was a little kid. Uh, and eventually what happened was that also I was admitted 
to the Columbia University Science Honors Program in high school. I, that was a special program for high school students who were interested in science. Um, and uh, there I was introduced to programming of the, an ancient computers called the IBM 650 and 1620 computers okay, in assembly language. Then I took a class from Joel Moses, who was an undergraduate at Columbia at the time. He taught Fortran programming to high school students. Okay, So I got hooked. Okay, but the reason why I actually thought the computer business was interesting is because it had the, the computers had thousands of tubes. <laughs> Think of it that way. <laughs> it was the biggest piece of electronics I had ever seen. Hey, I actually have a question on this. So, what was what was programming at this time? Like now, we have all these things that we we sort of are in the air as things we assume computers can do, but. You talk about a time when this is sort of a part of the electrical engineering department. Uh, what was the sense in the air about what programming was for? Well, first of all, I have no idea because I was too young right, yeah. to actually answer your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can say that, and certainly it was not the electrical engineering department. It was I was hanging around as a high school student at Columbia University. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the truth is that these computers were really primitive. Mm -hmm. right? An IBM 650... We ran, ran on the only memory was a drum memory, okay, which had 2,000 10 decimal digit words, mm -hmm. okay, and it would they were actually biquinary, was the way they were encoded, mm -hmm. and that uh, it took 12.5 milliseconds for it to find any particular word, okay. There was a very small amount of fast memory, which was the accumulators and things like that, and you programmed it in numbers. There was a, a primitive assembler, but sometimes the numbers were easier. And you punch the little car, uh, cards, and it would get read into a, a card reader, and then it would execute. Okay, and I remember all of the numerical instructions from the 650. Okay, that's the 1620 was also was a very strange machine which had a uh, field stop. So basically, there was no there were no words. It was decimal digits, and they you could get as many digits, decimal digits as you want in a particular word it read, did serial addition by table lookup <laughs> and uh it was very very slow but it was sort of fun to play with okay and but but it was a big piece of electronics you see mm -hmm. uh so that's the that's what it was like the biggest computer around at the time was the 7090 that they had at columbia which was used for their administrative stuff Okay, which was a or 709 i suppose it was again a vacuum tube computer but it had 32 thousand thirty six bit words mm -hmm. okay, as its memory and huge numbers of tape drives mm -hmm. okay yeah it sounds like you you were more interested in all the machinery tubes and and whatnot Absolutely. than the, the software itself which that's at the beginning that's what that's what attracted me what attracted me was this is a very big complicated piece of electronics mm -hmm. and there's a such an imaginative leap to the sorts of things that well that you'll get to that you were doing later with you know, okay, using these table lookups for addition, for serial addition, things like this, to go conceptualize that that could be something that leads towards symbolic calculations and then on and on. Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's just such a fascinating tale. So that's how I got into it. Thank yeah. And when, like, what did you find then, like, exciting about software instead later on, I suppose? Well, software, well, two things. One thing, software allows you to design abstract machines. Remember, a piece of software is the textual representation of a of the wiring diagram of a machine, which has boxes, which are the parts and the ways they interconnect. 
Okay, and the uh, it may be and it may be potentially an infinite machine because it might be recursive. Okay, that's not the important thing. It's not physically realizable as a as a as a device, but it is. You can then and it basically because of the invention of the universal interpreter by Mr. Turing. Okay, uh, it's possible to simulate that machine with any with any piece of hardware you like, and guess what? All of a sudden, you have an ability to express yourself. Say, I want to make a machine that does some particular thing that's hard to do. I want to say something I can't say in in English very well, or in even in math very well. Okay, I want to say it as is a how to rather than what is. Okay, I want to say that very clearly. Well, I can write it down now. And that's what mm-hmm. got me into the into software, the ability mm-hmm. to design arbitrarily complex, but understandable, big machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this seems way. like a this seems a common uh, common trait of like many people who answer this question, and yeah, it's also like the the reason why I got in, intrigued by software um, a few years mm-hmm. ago. Um, do you have a computer science hero uh, you would like to have lunch or drinks with? Well, yeah, what would you ask? the problem is that I've I've met almost all the heroes, okay, that are <laughs> because yeah. I've been doing this for a very long time. The only one I really have never met that I thought would I would love to have met is Turing, because he was obviously a really interesting character, okay. And unfortunately, there was you know he was dead before I was before I was uh, even beginning to play with computers. Yeah, like in my naive um, like learning, I realized just uh, not too long ago that there's not a lot like that you can see apart from pictures from of Turing. Uh, there are a few pictures, but that's it. I was I was hoping that there was a recording, something like you know the very first recording of things, but nothing, nothing. So we we only know his face and right. of course what what he wrote. What he well, what he, he wrote amazingly that. good stuff. He wrote some stuff on on the origins of life. Okay, you know he's he was he was pretty pretty impressive character. Well, there's there's also tales from the labs from Bell Labs where you know he's visiting, he's having lunch with Shannon and so on. But all of the work that we now know about, or much of it, is classified. And so the sense in the air that he's this brilliant guy is there, but uh, you know the depth of what he's accomplished. So you may have some people at the labs in the '50s who, in retrospect, go, I, I, "Oh my God, I did have lunch with." The top yeah. person on my list. I just didn't know. Well, it. I've, I've secondhand I've done therefore because I've had lunch with yes. uh, with Shannon. Yep. Yep. Yeah. At oh. Marvin Minsky's house. Amazing. <laughs> Shannon yeah. Minsky are very good friends. If only we had a recorder there, but we didn't. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have a favorite piece of software or application? Absolutely. Emacs. Ah, we expected that so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's because it's 40 years old. Okay. It has, it has survived the thousands of people adding to it. Thousands. Okay. It does, it continues to be reliable and effective with all of these thousands of people adding to it. It has gone through the transition to Unicode, which is an enormous pile of work. And it still works well, okay? And it's still growing. And so what I like about it is that it's a live object, okay? It's like an organism, okay? Unlike most code that, you know, you finish it, it's done, okay? This one this one continues to grow and thrive, and it's amazingly reliable, okay? 
Uh, Emacs, yeah, Emacs is a special thing. I, I, a friend recently used a metaphor of, you know, so, and I, I, it's a critique about computing, I would say, but he says, you know, the more you use your brain, the better your brain gets. The more you feed in, the better it is. Not the case with most software, that the more you accrete onto it, the more flexible it gets. And that really does seem to be the case with Emacs in a unique way. Maybe not quite unique, but. So it's an amazingly beautiful organization. Mm-hmm. And then it was done by Mr. Stallman, okay, Richard Stallman, who actually worked for me at the time, okay. But I was—that's uh, not why I'm pleased with it. I'm pleased with it because it's great. Um, okay, here's one that is uh, ambiguous in a way that will let you steer us. Uh, the question is: If you could change one thing about software, and that could be industry, academia, anything. If you—if you had—if you had the magic wand to just go swerve the world in some way. Uh, software related, what what would you do with that wand? Oh, it's very easy. The people who write software should be condemned to use it. <laughs> That's it. Oh, you should not, there should not, it's the, the famous eat your own dog food. Yeah, give me phenomenon. that wand back. <laughs> if people don't use the software they write, they shouldn't be allowed to put it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yes, that, that would take home. That would take away a lot of garbage, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> the only things that would survive are the things that people actually can use. Okay. Yes. That. Uh, let Let's let that stand carved into stone. That's a good lead into the next question, uh, given the context for the answer. I'm expecting, um, which is how did you get involved with Lisp? You mentioned your, you know, getting into computing. This is not an environment you described where anything like Lisp is in the air, but. Uh, Later, this this remarkably different environment becomes your home. So tell us about that. Well, it actually started a little earlier than than I was thinking of. When I was at Columbia as a, a high school student, uh, I, I found in the library, uh, the Library of Library Studies, hmm. a book about IPL5, mm-hmm. which was a interpreter uh, from, I suppose, Carnegie, I suppose, Carnegie Tech, which allowed you to have pushdown lists, okay? Mm-hmm. And I wrote a version of it myself in Fortran. And when I came to MIT, I got, I got adopted by Minsky, okay? Which everybody knows that story probably. I'm not going to tell it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was hanging around with him in Minsky's lab, and there were various other people there, like Richard B- Bill Gosper, R.W. Gosper, okay? He was a sort of, he is, still is, a fine mathematician. But what what Gosper Gosper was also had lots of interesting taste, and uh, over over some Chinese dinner, he explained to me Lisp. Okay, and I then went looked in the Lisp one point five programmers manual, which was available, uh, and I found the eval apply interpreter, and I fell in love. That's what happened. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh my God. But the IPL5 thing was one of the things I was probably telling Gosper about okay, at, at that, that Chinese dinner when he started telling me about Lisp. He said, look, there's a better thing than that. Mm-hmm. Alan Kay has a similar praise for a specific that page where the entirety of Lisp is like in a single page in the, in the 1.5 manual. Exactly. It's one, it's one that's the eval apply interpreter. Yes. Which is probably the most important piece of programming ever written, in my opinion. <laughs> and, and what you describe, I am imagining, because I had a similar experience with a different, not with a val apply, but with a piece of code where the the author presenting it to me had this, not smug, but to, this comment of what you're seeing here, you may not understand, but it's incredibly beautiful for reasons that 
will become clear to you over the years. And I, I fell in too. Um, it does, it does uh, speak to this being something special we've discovered, you know, about the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so that, that's, that's an amazing origin story. So what next you're in perfect fertile soil for this, you know, for Gosper to plant the seed. Right. Uh, what did you do? How long did it take to, to ramp up? Well, I was writing mostly at the time I was writing code mostly in, in assembly language, actually for the PDP six computer, because that's what Minsky had up there. And the PDP six only had at the beginning, again, 32 K of, I suppose it was 36-bit words. And uh, uh, eventually we got a, a full megabyte. Actually, it was 262,144 30, 40-bit words, actually, of which we only used 36, uh, made out of two-wire core, which we actually had to uh, had to contract to be have made. It was the first memory ever at that size. And it was um, cost 380,000 US dollars to make it in 1966, I suppose. Anyway, once that happened, it was then things like Lisp became really useful. Okay, mm-hmm. So rather rapidly, a, a nice Lisp appeared. Okay? And uh, that was the Mac Lisp system. And Joel Moses and his friends, the, the math, the mathematic, the, sorry, the math lab people, that was called math lab, okay, made, made Maxima, which was the first reasonable symbolic manipulator, okay? Mm-hmm. And that was just so impressive that I started. I, I started helping a little with that. I did some. I, I, I uh, uh, wrote some of the code that I, you know, I now am pretty. If look at it, it's awful, <laughs> but you know things like that. Uh, and but I slowly realized that this was the nicest thing for writing, for doing experimental programming. Okay, mm-hmm. if you're trying to write a program, you're not worried about whether or not. It's going to be usable by thousands of people. That's a different problem. But you want to get, you want to try out something and see if it really works well, okay? Or what what might be the intellectual consequences of trying a particular form, a particular way to write it rather than another way. Lisp was just the most flexible thing because you stop thinking about the critical things. You stop thinking about the language because language is simple. What you're thinking uh-huh. about is the problem, mm-hmm. okay? I'm going to keep, I'll push on this a little more because yeah. I'm, I'm so fascinated. Um, an amazing property of Lisp is this eval apply page. It's, it's all there in the beginning if you have the imagination to push it forward. But the hardware at the time uh, was not, I mean, not what it is now, but as you say, there's a hardware development that makes Lisp suddenly useful. How far ahead of the hardware were your imaginations or your imagination pushing at the time? Or was it the case that new hardware comes online by playing with the system, new ideas come? Well, the How critical thing is we couldn't make the Lisp. Lisp was pretty useless on in a tiny machine yep. because it it's basically uses memory. Mm-hmm. Memory, memory is the is the is the one critical thing that makes Lisp cheap or expensive. Okay, once you've got once you've got enough memory, Lisp is really nice. Okay, and. I suppose the great greatest breakthrough was the fact that when when you started having integrated circuit chip memory, became so cheap. You know nowadays what it was like. I got this is computer I'm talking to you in has sixty sixteen thousand times as much memory as the biggest computer in the world in when we when we had that one megabyte of RAM. Okay, so therefore it's 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 now completely usable. Um, but the other thing is of course that the the Hardware is the 
the way it executes in most computers is optimized for the original Fortran, believe it or not. Okay. I mean, Fortran pretty much controlled the way computers evolved. Okay. And so what you have is the easy to sequentially address something very fast, you indexing, index registers, incrementing, and things like that. Okay. And that, that is a sort of somewhat of a bad thing because it means that you then have, you then have the problem of stuff not being compact in memory for if so you get cache misses. So Lisp is not really as efficient as other languages because of the fact that it tends to spread out in memory rather than being compact. The invention of the compacting garbage collector, okay, the first of the first one of which, by the way, was by Minsky in 1961. Okay, believe it or not, he wrote it for the PDP one, which had almost no memory at all. You would copy from the disk onto the into the memory and back. Okay, but the copying compacting garbage collector, which is the sort of standard beginning thing, uh, was. Uh, uh, Make, makes it possible to at least get some performance out of a Lisp. Okay, mm -hmm. if you try to use a mark sweep algorithm like we had in the on the PDP six, it wouldn't work for modern computers because it leaves things in distributed all over memory. So the working set's too big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's fascinating to think that it, it, you know Moore's law is not the the only dimension at play here. It's not just that there's sort of computational fluid that is getting sprinkled down from on high, it's architectures are getting optimized. Lisp right. does wonderfully, but there's an alternate reality where that d architecture took off, the tables are turned. And, and, and the other part of it is that, that you know, the Lisp was the first, I suppose, um, type, dynamically typed, I suppose you want to call it, or, you know, the, where the type is built into the, into the pointer. Okay. So you can say that this is a, this is a, a pointer to an array versus a pointer to a number or something. Okay. That doesn't work well, even on modern architectures, because we have, because the floating point size is which determines everything is, uh, you know, is like 64 bits for most machines. And, you know, that's the, the then where are you going to put your, where are you going to put the, the type tag? Okay. So in fact, there are some good ideas like, like NAND typing, you know, using the NAND codes, okay, for mm -hmm. types. Uh, but, you know, that's the, I'm just saying that they, they we're still constrained a bit in the way we build things, mm -hmm. okay, because because everything's really optimized around the original Fortran model. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's one. Uh, you have spoken uh, in a number of talks about this idea that code is an incredibly powerful medium for communication. It's not just a symbolic uh, language we need to use to program computers. Humans can talk to each other through this set of symbols and gain much more clarity. Uh, you've walked the walk with this, with structure and interpretation of computer programs. Uh, more perhaps startlingly, uh, this structure and interpretation of classical mechanics applies the same treatment to physics and classical mechanics. And then functional differential geometry uh, also does the same thing for the math behind general relativity. And these are extraordinarily illuminating, and I'm a total convert to this idea. So the question is, if you had to pick another field, could be technical, could be uh, could be not, could be anything, to bless with this code as communication treatment, let's say you had 10 years or so, what field or area would you go to? Well, the problem is it's hard for me to think about this because uh, immediately the things that hit me are there's sort of parts of physics that are 
need 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 treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, of course, quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. which unfortunately has the horrible problem that its math is very simple. It's all out linear algebra, but its but its interpretation is unclear. And I don't know enough about. I don't feel like I have enough power to attack quantum mechanics. Okay, there is another part of physics which I do have the power to attack. If I would say the the textbook treatment of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics is about the worst treatment you'll find in any in any branch of science. It's just mm-hmm. poorly written books, all of them. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> and so, if I were going to actually want to go after something on a reasonable you know ten year type period, it would be something like uh, thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, which is the underlying under underlying theory under the thermodynamics. Um, because I think that can be clarified rather well. I mean, it's too much impressionistic mathematics in that business. The, however, if you want to talk what's really important, I have no idea how to do it. But you know, we have we have social, economic, and political, and you know all those sort of problems that are involve things like ethics, okay, and policy, and stuff like that, and. That's a hundred-year or five-hundred-year project, okay? Mm. And I think that's that's probably the most important thing. That's what we're really lacking in the world. We have no clarity on how to decide even how to even decide ethical problems or how to even try to think about them. Mm-hmm. Almost wow. all ethical problems are, present present terrible uh, terrible alternatives, and we don't know how to play that game. It would be very nice if we could if we could be clear clear about that. But okay. That's, Do you think? Do you think that's possible? That's even possible to like. Well, uh, it's, it's well, it's not been possible for the look. The philosophers have had a lot of trouble with it for the last few thousand years. Okay, <laughs> so it's obviously pretty hard. But the the point is, there's no reason not to try. And the fact is that nothing is nothing is possible until you or impossible until you've tried it. And I think it's very important to make an effort for somebody to make an effort to try to to clarify not the particular rules that people should should obey because that depends on culture and things like that but the way in which people think about such rules what's the what's the proper symbolic representation of ethical questions not necessarily ethical answers how do we ask That's these right. questions how like how do we also how do we write down the what what a particular culture considers what are the rules for any particular thing consider right. rule, rules are just insanely complicated the rules are insanely complicated, and you see uh, attempts now to use our existing technical tools to go codify what we mean by ethics. And they're so simple that it, it falls down in these laughable ways, which, which is nice, yeah. right? We're not at this part where we can trick ourselves into thinking we've solved the problem, but uh, that that does stand out as something that <laughs> physics, physics, it'll work. Someone's just got to do it. Ethics probably will work given, you know, 500 to 1,000 years. Yes, that's right. At least, at least we better try. Yes, it's never worthwhile right. not trying. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So here's the personal version of this. Uh, I happen to know, maybe not all of our listeners do, that uh, Jerry is the engineer's engineer. You're a consummate tinkerer. Uh, we're in your workshop now. the The podcast audience won't see this, but uh, <laughs> this is a this is a, a engineer's paradise behind you. 
Um, you had to stand as a bonded locksmith. You're a skilled watchmaker. Uh, and I believe you're published in the newsletter of the Massachusetts Watchmakers Association. A very minor there. thing. It's a very minor <laughs> thing. It was about uh, the Lake Main Springs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the question is, given, let's say, a century, what else is on your menu? What other identities might you assume? Well, I really would like to be have enough time to 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 do the work to be a become a master watchmaker. That's mm-hmm. sort of like getting a doctor's degree in the, in some other field. Um, there are very few of them, and there are some great ones who we we all aspire to be like. Okay, like you know, you can. I don't know if you've ever heard of George Daniels, for example, who passed away a few years ago. He invented, recently invented a type of escapement, which is now being used by Omega called a coaxial escapement. Okay, oh, yeah. I heard, the, I heard that. Yes. Yeah. And that's a, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing to, it would be wonderful to be, to be, uh, to be that kind of, of watchmaker. Um, there's, but I, if I pick other things, I, you know, I'm, I'm, although I'm pretty good at designing electrical circuits, I would love to be again at the level of one of the great designers from one of those famous companies like Analog Devices or Burr Brown. Okay, I don't really care about the digital circuits; they're easy. I mean, they're not. You know, they get the main problem there is st- stuffing them together and making them reliable. But they're but making analog circuits at that scale is is a is really a a, a very different kind of skill. Okay, which involves also th- also thinking about how the temperatures change across the chip as you as you excite things and, and stuff like that. Okay, so I would love to have time to worry about that. And if I pick the the what I think is also maybe the hardest design problem of all, I love design in general, and the, I think there's nothing quite as hard as the design of optical equipment, mm. in particular big stuff like like camera lenses. Okay, that's. Mm-hmm. You know, most people don't realize that a camera lens is an enormously complicated thing with zillions of trade-offs. Okay, it's you can't make it perfect. Unlike a, a, you know, if you you can one thing you can do if you make an astronomical telescope, you can make it perfect, meaning as perfect as possible physically because the wavelengths determine what you can actually do. Okay, and the and the atmosphere limits it if you're in the atmosphere. But if you put it in space, you don't have that problem. But at least the size of the telescope determines the the resolution. And things and it's it's light gathering power, and that's the end of it because you can make it perfect, but you can't do that for an camera lens. It's got to work over many focuses, many 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 focal lengths. If it's a zoom lens, it has to work with many uh, aperture stops. Okay, it's a it's a very different problem, and I would love to be able to do things like that. You know, I've thought about it, and I say, boy, does that look complicated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just have a quick. Do you think? Do you think analog computing is due for? Is you know has, has digital won the won the day, or in the next thousand years are we going to have a crop of analog computers that people are voraciously designing and, and excelling at? That's very that the, the, you're making a distinction that's not real. Hmm. Your digital computer is analog. Mm. It's dealing sure. with, with voltages and currents. The, yes. The way you say it is this: digital is a choice made by a designer. Yes. To exchange complexity of the design for noise immunity. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay? That's right. that's fundamentally what it is. Okay. But and and at the, and at some level, 
probably when we get to quantum mechanical stuff, everything's digital. Because nothing is quite as exactly true as this electron is either spin up or spin down. It is not something else. Okay. <laughs> now it may be that it can't tell us and it'll, and it, it'll tell us that it's, uh, that it's in some superposition of those states, but it's by golly, if you ask it, it's either spin up or spin down. Okay. So, so, so the universe appears to be digital at that level. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but yeah, you know, the, again, these choice analog and digital is just ranges of design choices. Okay, mm. so for example, right now, it is possible because of very very fast digital hardware to make software defined designed ra defined radios up to a few hundred megahertz. Right. Mm -hmm. However, the very front end of the re the radio receiver, okay, if it doesn't have a nice analog filter in front of it the local broadcast station is going to kill it. Just think of it that way. Okay, you got five volts on your antenna. There's no way you're going to solve that problem of trying to dig out something out of the noise with your digital goodie, however smart it is. So there's a so there's there's always the region which makes it impossible where, where the analog beats the digital, but it's a small portion of the thing. Mm -hmm. The digital is all the complicated processing you want to do. But the analog is the is is acquiring the signal, and 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 making it available and separating it from the rest of the signals that are that might be might, might be killing you. Okay, yeah. like if I were to say, what am I going to? I have it right in front of me here, an, an oscilloscope. Okay, nice oscilloscope made by Tektronix. I like it. It's a nice little fella. Okay, it's mostly a computer these days. But you know, the really interesting part is the very front end. What goes after that probe goes into the BNC connector, okay? Behind that is a very very fancy attenuator, okay, which determines the gain of the of the of the input amplifier, okay? And that amplifier input amplifier had better have a very very wide bandwidth, okay? It better be able to deal with up to a few hundred megahertz, okay? After that, it goes into the A to D, and you know what the hell. Then it becomes digital. But that very front end there is still going to be analog. And I don't care how yeah. big, how 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 fast our computers are, how big they are. You know, if you're dealing with light, which is ten to the fifteenth hertz or something, you can't you can't uh, deal with that by by sampling it. Okay. And maybe maybe someday we'll be able to sample higher than where we go. Like maybe we can sample up to the microwaves. But are we going to be able to sample the light? I think it's very unlikely because the energies required would be very high. Well, what's coming through here is a widening of the conception of what you might think of as design. If, if you thought that, you know, Jerry was just a software designer or just a software engineer and the boundaries here are not constrained by the, the digital portion of the machine where, you know, we, we expand out to the universe, what signals the universe can send us, what signals we send to other humans via symbolic representations, the design of the representations themselves. All of this is fair game if you're trying to make things and learn things. Is, uh, yeah. And, is you a, know, a we, we recently, there was this wonderful thing that would happen a few years ago. We actually saw gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. That was the most amazing piece of, of, uh, of design and construction of the most sensitive piece of machinery ever made. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, you, you those guys are, are seeing the motions 
on the order of the size of a thousandth of a proton diameter. Okay, that's yeah. You go now. You figure that out. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's going to be something we you know that they, they use lots and lots of digital stuff to process the result, but just getting that signal. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they talk about a whole new field now that it opens up for design of of you know gravitational right. wave astronomy. It's outrageous or whatever. You know, and there's whatever. the world full of that. That's okay. Right. There's lots of lots of things that you have to do that way. So. Okay. Let's move on to, uh, well, it's all related. Uh, the question is, what, what's your idea of, what's the good life uh, in your conception? What, you might call it perfect happiness, but let's just expand it to what is, what is the good life for, for you now? It's very easy. It's sitting around talking to friends like you, okay? But I, unfortunately, I'd much rather have a, a chalkboard behind me and mm -hmm. be sitting in, the, in a room around a cup of, a pot of tea and working out interesting problems on a chalkboard. Mm -hmm. That is the that is the good life. All right. I I'd like to be part of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. You you. Uh, I'll I'll inject an assumption. So correct this if it's wrong. But uh, I'll bull forward. Uh, you came of age at let's say MIT uh, at a time when, certainly looking back from my perspective, there seemed to be this air of intense excitement and fun and discovery. Just what is computing? What have we found? Something special is going on here. Uh, we didn't know what computing was going to become. Uh, we weren't constrained by the constraints we assume are fixed and timeless now. And you really did need to be courageous with the exploration you did. Um, yeah. So the sense I have in my career in life is that the dust has really settled and you know we know what software is supposed to be like. Uh, I don't want to feel that way. So what advice would you give to someone in the field today, who's really on fire with the ideas that you've spread through the books you've put out and the work you've done on how to keep that fire and how to keep the work fun in a world that really demands that, or seems to demand that we be serious about our work. And well, I'm you know, going to give you a downer. I'm sorry. Sorry. It's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> no, okay. no. Well, yes. The problem is that fields, when they first start, and there are only a few people in them who are the pioneers those fields are exciting. They stop being exciting. They start being everyday work. And the computing business has moved into that world. Okay? Now, there's, now there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of computer programmers. When I started, there might have been a total of 100 in the whole world. Okay? So it's, I don't know, maybe it was 500. I don't know, something like that. Okay? But the fact is, that's a very different kind of world. If you want to pick the, if you want, I think it's time to say, say what is the next big field? Okay. And I don't think it's going to be computing. Okay. I think computing is, of course, going to progress and produce wonderful stuff. And, you know, I'm very pleased about that. And I use, make use of it. But mm -hmm. the, the next big thing, the, I consider for the 21st century, the central uh, the technology is going to be what we call synthetic biology. The creation of creatures to, to order. It's going to use a lot of computing to figure out things, to do the modeling and simulation and things like that. But we finally know enough biology so it's possible to actually make creatures to order. Right? And there are people doing it. My former student, Tom Knight, is, is a major leader in that field. And I think that, I think that uh, uh, 
you know, I think that's the that's where the excitement is because it's only a few people doing it. Mm. Okay, and they're, they're, those people are working their butts off, <laughs> and I think that's the real but, the real <laughs> phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Judging from the the quality of the veggie burgers that I normally buy and eat, there's something happening there because they're getting so so nice, um, and they may become alive one of these days. Well, one the, the critical thing, of course, is exactly that. Like for example, yeah, wouldn't you like to be able to have meat without any animals? The meat is very tasty. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't like killing animals, but I think the meat is tasty. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's not any reason why you couldn't grow muscle fibers in a uh, in a tank. If you mm-hmm. did, if you you might have to do some genetic modification to them to make them work right, but that's mm-hmm. okay. I don't believe that genetic modification is necessarily a bad thing. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, after all, you know, and, and if you if you got a little of yourself, suppose you took a piece of your own muscle and grew it in the tank, then you could eat it, and you would have the feature that it would never could catch anything you didn't you couldn't catch anything from it that you didn't already have. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay? So you could have, you know, you could have Renzo, Renzo, Renzo muscle. That's what Renzo would eat. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I want to be happy about that. <laughs> well, I no, yeah, you would. You, but you think about it that way. Okay. You know, that's a, that's, that's the kind of future that I think is very likely. Okay. Yeah, and, and once again, yeah, yeah. we is this widening of the conception of design. We say, what if you took your, what if you use different computational substrates? What would that let you do? You know, quantum computing is one take at that. What if we had a qubit? What would we do? And this is, well, actually, there are other, there are things all throughout through our world that seem to be computing, and you know, by God, you can treat that them that way. Time. That's yeah. right. Look at these. Look at the amazing thing. Here we have a. Here we have the human genome is only a gigabyte. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you add things like methylation, it's not going to be more than two two gigabytes. Mm-hmm. So two gigabytes is what it takes to start with a, a, a single cell and develop an entire complex machine, build it, put it together, maintain it for a good number of years, you know, have it able to, to, to uh, defend itself against other such machines that would eat it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's, that's an amazing thing. Remember, a gigabyte is not much bigger than it's not. It's actually smaller than I think. It's not smaller than Microsoft Word. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay? yeah. There's some comparison uh, of you know uh, Windows 95 <laughs> or something. Was, uh, yeah. XP so think about think thing. about think about the fact that we can make we can, that the code for building a, an animal is more 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 compact. And more flexible because all you have to do is change a little bit of it, and you get a rabbit instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we don't have to, we we haven't learned how to program yet. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it's remember, nature's been doing this one for a couple of billion years. Well, actually, about a billion years, a billion years since they were eukaryotes. Yeah, so Lisp is young. <laughs> yes. Um, what here's a here's one about the state of the state of what we know today. Uh, I'll give you the long version and the short version. The long one is wh- what developments in the field uh, do you find personally fascinating and interesting and would love to read and learn about them, but you think or know that they're just fundamentally misguided with respect to how we design software systems or design in general. And the oh. short thing is what idea do you love, but you know, fascinated with, but think is wrong. I think that, well, I can, I'm going to be controversial here, but I think that um, attempting to 
Prove properties of programs. Okay. Is a wonderful business. The people are really brilliant. They do very nice work. And I like the work, but I think it has nothing to do with real software engineering. Okay. And the reason why it has nothing to do with software engineering and why it's not really a big contribution to that is because most real systems can't be specified. If you could specify them, that they're just sort of dead. Okay. That's exactly. Imagine trying to specify Emacs. Mm-hmm. What would that mean? Okay. It's changing by tomorrow. Somebody's added a new feature tomorrow. Okay. You know, the concept, even if you had arbitrarily good, quote, proving technology, what would you actually say it's supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's supposed to be reasonable. It's supposed to do something that makes me happy. Okay. <laughs> it does. So that's the problem. I think that that the real big problems in, in, in software engineering have very little to do with that. It's yeah. What you're pointing out uh, is that the things we prove properties about are are maps. They're not the territory. We're proving properties of models of a system. And yeah. if you want to convince yourself you've solved this problem, you can uh, just build a simpler model that less and less matches the real thing. Right. Think you've cracked something and move on. And in reality, you, you know. The thing is so big that... Well, on the other hand, there are very clear things that should be proved. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the memory allocation or garbage collection system in, a, in an operating system or a language implementation, that has to be proved. And mm-hmm. that's small. That's, you know, a couple of pages of code. If, it, if it's more than a publication to go, a couple of pages of code is not going to work. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the, that's, the sort of, that's the sort of thing that surely there's... I'm not opposed to doing that sort of work. I just think it's not killing the big problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Pick other big problems. There are other big problems like that. Security. It's not the solu- solution is not is not cryptography. In the same way that every locksmith knows that putting a better lock on the door doesn't pre- prevent the burglar from getting in. He knocks down the door, mm-hmm. breaks your window. Okay. The lock on the door is not the way you keep the burglar out. It's a social si- a signal to say you're not not supposed to come in. That's what it is. Okay? Mm-hmm. And we have to, if we want to solve the security problem, we have to invent a social structure where it becomes taboo to do some of the things that we see people doing. Hmm. Um, okay, I think we are toward the end of the, like, uh, at least the, the, the topics we wanted to talk about. Uh, but before we close, I wanted to ask if you want to spend a couple of notes talking about what your keynote is going to be. Right. The, 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 I'm basically going to talk about I'll tell you what it is. It's about the idea that is only partially worked out in the new book by Chris and me called Layering, which I think Mm -hmm. is an important idea about the architecture of programs. Yeah. Okay. However, however, I've made some recent very important breakthroughs in how to do it, which we didn't make it into the book. It's what layering is about is the idea that you can... you can have many things computing at once at different layers. So, for example, I have a normal, a simple numerical process that computes some numbers. I could have, I could have units on top of that. I could have, uh, I could have tracking of dependencies. Okay, all of those things, and they shouldn't interfere in the sense that the original pr- pr- thing you're looking at, the you're the the essence of the problem, the little program that computes the numbers is simple and never gets elaborated with lots and lots of types and stuff like that. 
Gotcha. Okay. okay. So you have a All right. ways of, of making layers. Okay. Mm -hmm. The same way an architect okay. makes layers. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 Thanks for for the explanation. All right. Um, so it just remains for us to ask if there's anything we forgot that you would like to add that we didn't say. Look, I can talk for hours. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> so the answer is yes. There. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's more. Fine. It's okay. 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 Well, fantastic. So um, we're looking forward to your uh, keynote in about 10 days or so, less than 10 days right. now. And um, it was an immense pleasure for me um, to like have this opportunity to ask a few questions, listen to you. And of course, I would listen to my many more hours of this. And we, we need to find a way to... We, like, we uh, find ways to get together <laughs> again. That's yeah, the broadcast this on a regular basis with you know everything that... Uh, Jerry thinks about software and everything else. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Sam, as well, for the wonderful questions and interaction. Jerry, this has been a total thrill. It's always great to speak with you. Is there anywhere, we'll put links in the show notes to the books that we've discussed, to your books. Um, yeah. Is there anywhere else you'd point people on the internet to read more about what you're thinking? We've got your, we've got your website we can put up, but, or, or unrelated to you, is there anywhere you'd send people as a final note? Not really. Uh, I certainly, I'm not one of those people who writes a blog. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. You're not going to catch me doing that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Books it is. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Right. Bye.